Psalms 77. Let's look at verse 11. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember the wonders of old. I will meditate also of all thy work and talk of thy doings. So what the psalmist is saying is he'll remember what God has done and then he'll talk about what God has done and is doing. Look at the 78th Psalm, verse 6. That the generation to come might know them, even the children which should be born who should arise and declare them to their children, that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. The Bible in Isaiah chapter 46 says, Remember the former things of old. And, you know, I know that what has happened is we began to, we have begun to teach history in such a way that people are just bored to tears by it and just and they don't listen it's done in a way to where people can't remember can't think about what is what has happened in the past alexander solzhenitsyn the famous russian dissident who wrote his book the gulag archipelago he said if you want to destroy a people you must first sever them from their roots and we have been severed from the foundation of our country if you look at a standard textbook the the revolutionary period is given so little attention We don't understand why people fought and died, what they were willing to sacrifice for. And so we don't know what would be willing to sacrifice and die for now. We don't understand those things. And so this morning, I want us to just remember some things. I want us to see some things that God has done to make the United States of America a bastion of freedom and a place that is a lighthouse of liberty to the world. Why is that so important? Well, let's go to Galatians chapter 5 and I'll show you. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Let me read that verse again. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, You have given us liberty here at Grace Baptist Church, those of us who have been born again and who are members of Grace Baptist Church. Lord, you have revealed to us the truth of your word, how that we can walk in liberty, that we don't need to be under the bondage of the law. As a nation, you gave us liberty. You've shown us that we don't have to be under the bondage of tyranny. Lord, help us to understand the liberty that you've given us as a nation and help us to beware the bonds that are coming our way. Father, help us remember the past so that we don't repeat the mistakes that were made. In Jesus' name, amen. We saw on that video something that this might bring to your remembrance. Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. On the 18th of April in 75, hardly a man is now alive who remembers that famous day and year. Remember that? You know that poem? One if by land, two if by sea, and I on the opposite shore will be, ready to ride and spread the alarm through every Middlesex village and farm for the country folk to be up and to arm. Isn't that interesting? That is so opposite of where we are today. 
then they would gather everybody together and say, up and fight. Now we say, make sure that you don't have a pocket knife when you get on the plane. There's a difference in the way that we think. And if we'll go back and study what the founders believed and how they expected us to behave, it'll change the way that we live right now. You know, the Second Amendment is more than the right to bear arms. It's more than the right to have a handgun. That, that's not what it's about. It was a requirement for every home to have a gun. That's what it was. So that we could be a standing militia. So that, and, uh, man, can you imagine? Now, if you're a guest here today, yeah, we're kooks. We really, we are. No, we're, but we're not kooks like that. We're, you know, we're not calling for the violent overthrow of the government. There, there's none of that. We just actually believe that the Constitution of the United States is a good thing. And it has given us the liberty that we have enjoyed for 230 years. And that those who go against it are really enemies of the state. They are treasonous. And the, the right to bear arms is the, the purpose for, for citizens to have those guns was that to be able to immediately raise a standing militia to fight enemies that would come in or the government if necessary. So people say, why do we need assault weapons? Because the government has them. If we really understood the Second Amendment, we as a, as a community ought to have nuclear weapons. Now, I don't necessarily want Nick Arling to have the button. But, I don't know. He'd probably be a pretty good guy to have that. Or at least Yvonne. But the idea is... Now, how many... Seriously. You don't have to raise your hand. But some of you might think, Pastor, that's sounding a little extreme. Well, if you understood how extreme the world was when our nation was founded, then you'd understand why these extreme measures were taken. Say, Pastor, is this message about guns? No. No, but guns were certainly involved. And it's interesting, when you look at what our people and our fathers valued, even 80 or 90 years ago, it's, that's lost today. You know, we're, we're not going to build a monument to a battle that took place in Iraq. We're, we're not going to do that. If we win a battle in Kabul, we're not going to build a monument to that. But if you, if you cover our country, you'll see monuments to great battles that have taken place by American soldiers around the world defending liberty and defending freedom. Why? Because that cause of liberty and freedom, it was something that was taught. It was bred into us. We loved it. We'd sing about it. But through the 1960s, we allowed people to, to rob us. They, they lifted up a model of a society that had never existed anywhere in the world and then compared our American system to that and found it wanting. And so now, for more than 40 years, our young people have been taught that, that Americans are racists, they're evil, they're colonialists, and they're, they, they will go in and they'll hurt people and subdue them and we're just evil people. When nothing could be farther from the truth. All the way back in 1620 when the first people came and settled here. They came here. Why? Because they were fleeing tyranny. They wanted a place to have liberty. 
Now, they didn't grant liberty the way that they wanted liberty, but they came with a concept of liberty. 1630, the next group came. and After that, there was a massive expansion. You understand, we've talked about it before. By 1637, you had the famous Roger Williams came, and he just couldn't stand the way that the state church was oppressing people here in America. And so he was disfranchised. That means they took all of his possessions and they were going to put them in a boat and put them out in the ocean. That's, that's a death sentence. You understand that, right? I mean, those are the great Puritans that, that people love to exalt. And boy, they were great as long as you agreed with them. If you disagreed with them, you were in big trouble. So he went and bought some land in Rhode Island and he started the first free colony in America. And I'm so thankful for what he did there. We know that John Clark came and started the First Baptist Church, 1638. Roger Williams started his church in 1639, and that church disbanded after a little while, and Roger Williams became a seeker and never had anything to do with organized religion again. But John Clark kept fighting for freedom in America. He went back to England and for 12 years petitioned the throne through uh, all the way through Cromwell's reign and then into Charles II's reign, and he finally got that Rhode Island Charter. And that Rhode Island Charter was the first document of any kind granting religious liberty in the world. From that point, America started to experience freedom. And you need to understand the place that religion had in all of this. Why did Roger, why did Roger Williams and John Clark want liberty? Because it was against the law to believe anything different than the state church taught. That's not freedom of conscience. The reason that we have freedom and liberty is because a group of people wanted to worship God. It's not because they wanted to come and be drunk and, and, and live licentious lives and practice sodomy and all of those kinds of things that people want to exalt now. No, they came because they wanted to worship God according to the dictates of their own conscience. And they understood that in order to do that, if I'm going to do that, if I want the liberty to do that, then I've got to tolerate Patrick to worship any God that he wants to or no God at all without any penalty. And that also gives me the liberty to come and speak to Patrick about my faith and try to win him to the Lord Jesus Christ. But I have to give him the liberty of conscience to reject that message. That's the foundation of the liberty that we had in America that then spread around the world. See, we're always told about the humanistic and the enlightenment influence on the founding of America. And it's just not true. It's not true. Thomas Jefferson and James Madison were not influenced by the humanists. They were influenced by the believers. Well, even in our Constitution, even in our Declaration of Independence, we have writings that, that go all the way back to a writing by a man named Leonard Busher. We're getting too technical. But uh, that was written all the way in the 1600s, petitioning the king for religious liberty. That's the foundation of the documents that we have. Not Hume. Uh, not the humanist. Do you know the, the, the manifestation of that humanist idea? It was the French Revolution. The French Revolution, where thousands of people were either beheaded or drowned, the guillotine, in the reign of terror. When Alexis de Tocqueville came in the 1800s to see why America was different... He wrote a book called Democracy in America. And he traveled America, wanted to see why the American experiment was so different from the French experiment. Because the French experiment didn't last. By the 1800s, it was done. 
And here was America flourishing in the 1800s. And do you know what his conclusion was? The religion of the people. That's what made the United States of America different. But something happened in the 1900s. We started removing that religious influence, the secularists, through our educational system, John Dewey and all those things that we've talked about. They wanted to raise a secular religion that removed Christianity and any influence of God from our culture. And they started removing the influence of Christianity from the textbooks, removing that from our history books, removing it, removing it, removing it, and then making it a crime in many places to speak the truth of the Word of God. Did you hear in Massachusetts? They can't get, in this town of Massachusetts, they can't get any teachers to say the Pledge of Allegiance. Just this week, it was a report. Praise God for the godly teachers we have in this church. Amen? Praise God for the godly school teachers that we have around this country who still stand up and speak the truth in the classroom and teach the kids, but they have to bring in information that is not a part of the regular curriculum in order to do that. That's what has to happen. Where, where did some of this liberty... We talk about it. You know, we've talked about Roger Williams and we've talked about John Clark. We've told you about how Obadiah Holmes was beaten in 1651 on the Boston Common, the exact same spot as the Boston Massacre, a hundred years earlier. Why? Because he was having an unregistered church service. Was beaten almost to death. Henry Dunster saw that. He was the first president of Harvard University. And he started studying the scriptures about this subject of baptism. And he realized that infant baptism wasn't in the Bible. And so when he had his baby, he didn't bring her to, be, to the church to be baptized. And so he was fired and his, all of his land was taken. And that's where Harvard University is now. And these people, they fought for the truth. They stood for the truth. They struggled. At the First Continental Congress at Carpenter's Hall in Philadelphia in 1774, a group of Baptists, Isaac Backus and James Manning and some others, they went and met before John Adams. And they were trying to get religious liberty in Massachusetts. And John Adams said, we, there will be a disestablishment of religion in Massachusetts as soon as there is a realignment in the heavens. Well, they don't understand the God that we have who created the heavens. Amen? And now there is freedom of, of expression in Massachusetts. There is freedom of religion in Connecticut. There's freedom of religion in all of the original colonies and now in many places around the world. Why? Because there were some people who were willing to take a stand and to fight. And we've talked about those things. We think about 1771. In 1771, remember what had happened in the colonies. You had the Schism Act of 1714. Now, I know, throwing dates at you. 1714, though, here's what they said. The Schism Act was an act by Parliament in England under the king that said that you are not allowed to teach anything outside of the Church of England. The Marriage Act of 1748 said that if you are married in any other church than the Church of England, then the government does not recognize that marriage. And so, if you believed anything other than what the Church of England taught, then you were not educated. You were known as being ignorant. If you were married in any church other than Anglican church, then you were not actually married. You were living in sin. You were illegitimate. And all of those children were illegitimate children. Now, see, in, in 2010, that doesn't mean a whole lot to us when half of the kids that are being born now are born out of wedlock. But you have to understand the curse that was on those kids in that period of time. 
On top of that, in North Carolina, there was a man named Lord William Tryon. William Tryon hated the Baptists because... Remember what happened? Yeah, George Whitfield, he came and he preached, you must be born again. You remember that? Uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin was so enamored with, with Whitfield and his ability to speak that he marked off, he walked off as far as he could still hear Whitfield preach. He had such a big voice. He wanted to see how far away he could get and still hear Whitfield preaching. And he got to about a mile and a half away. Can you imagine? But Whitfield would preach until blood came out of his mouth. And he would preach, you must be born again! That was his message everywhere that he went. He was an Anglican bishop. He came to the United States preaching, but they wouldn't let him preach in the Anglican churches. Did you know that? That's why he preached in the fields. Because he believed in what was called experimental religion. That is, that it doesn't matter how you're baptized, you must be born again. Amen? And a reporter asked him one time, why do you always preach you must be born again? He said, because you must be born again. And so people were coming under the preaching of the Word of God, and God used that man of God in a great way, and thousands and thousands and thousands of people came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. But here's what happens. When you have the Word of God, and you are now indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, that's what happens when you're born again. When you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, when you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone, your eternal life, the Holy Spirit comes to live in you. When the Holy Spirit comes to live in you, and then you read the Bible, then you understand things in the Bible that you didn't understand before you were saved. And so these people who are now born again, they begin reading their Bibles, and they find that the things that they're being taught at the Congregational Church or at the Anglican Church aren't in the Bible. They're based on 39 articles in the Anglican Church that really didn't have anything to do with Scripture. And so now people are reading the Bible and they start associating with what were called separate Baptist churches. And Whitfield in his diary was really bothered by that. He said, all my chickens have turned into ducks. Isn't that funny? Well, we've talked about Shubal Stearns and how Shubal Stearns got saved under the preaching of George Whitfield. He goes to Connecticut and he becomes a member of a church there, a Baptist church, and he's baptized by Wade Palmer in Tallinn, Connecticut, and He's ordained and sent out, and he goes to Virginia and starts preaching the gospel. But it's against the law to be a Baptist in Virginia. He and his brother-in-law, Daniel Marshall, they end up going down to North Carolina. They had heard that there were people riding 40 miles on horseback to hear a preacher preach. Can you imagine? We think it's too far to drive from Piqua. They're riding horses 40 miles to come and hear the gospel. So Shubal Stearns, Daniel Marshall, they go to Lincoln County, North Carolina, and they start a little church at a place called Sandy Creek. Within a few years, that church takes off, and we know the story that within 50 years, more than 1,000 churches have come out of that church. Within 15 years, 125 men are called to preach. So here's what's happening. 1771, Tryon is governor in North Carolina, and he is persecuting the Baptists. The Baptists only have a, a very small representation. The laws are against them. And so the Baptists and the Quakers get together to try and do something about these these oppressive laws. They're coming in, they're taking their land, they're stealing their crops, they're not giving them any representation in court, and they couldn't take it anymore. So a group of them get together, and they call them the regulators, because what they're trying to do is regulate, moderate what this Tryon is doing to them. And so they end up having to fight. And you know that if you're in a fight and you have a Quaker at your side, he's not going to help you a whole lot. <laughs> right? They're nice people, they make great oatmeal, but they're bad fighters. And so you end up, you have this war of the regulators, and it's a bunch of these farmers that are there. And Tryon comes in with his troops, 
and they have a battle. And the, the regulators weren't really even prepared for a battle. They had their wives and kids with them. They're camping. And so you go to Alamance County. It's the Battle of Alamance County. If you go to Alamance County today, we just did that on our, on our history trip that we just took. And you can go there, and there's a marker there that identifies it as the first battle of the Revolutionary War, 1771. And the, the Baptists that are there are overrun. They flee. The next place that Tryon takes his troops are the grounds of Sandy Creek Baptist Church. Why? Because the separate Baptist revival was having such an amazing impact. Joseph Murphy was called the leader of the regulators. Joseph Murphy was saved under the ministry of Schubel Stearns. And he starts a church. He has more than 900 people in his church in 1771. Can you imagine? And so they go and they camp at Sandy Creek. And they go over to this other church. And they take Benjamin Merrill, who was a member of Joseph Murphy's church. And they take him and they hang him. But he's hung, drawn, and quartered. He's hung. And before he dies, they, cut, they bring him down and they cut out his entrails. They pull them out and they burn them before his face. And then his body is cut in pieces and taken to every county to show what happens to people who resist Lord Tryon. And this was done in front of his wife and all of his children, along with six other of the regulators, five other of the other regulators. So here's what happens. They camp. Sandy Creek Baptist Church has 606 members. The next year they have 14. But what happened? It's like exa it's exactly what happened in Acts chapter 8. Remember what happened? Where the Bible says, And Saul made havoc of the church. And the Bible says, And they went everywhere preaching the gospel. So here's what happened. In North Carolina, you had this small bastion of Bible truth, people preaching the gospel. You must be born again, baptized biblically, living the word of God, establishing churches. Tryon comes to stamp them out. And they end up going into South Carolina, Virginia, Kentucky, which was how we would know Tennessee now. A group of those people, they go over the Blue Ridge Mountains, they end up in Tennessee, and they start the Buffalo Ridge Baptist Church, 17, organized 1777. And here's what happens. A man named, named uh, Lane, his last name was Lane. Tidence Lane, a strange name, isn't it? Tidence Lane is the first pastor of that church. Well, you have the Battle of Alamance County. By the time you get to 1780, what has happened? The Revolutionary War has started, 1776. And we've heard of the great battles at Bunker Hill and the battles at the beginning, but then America's losing. Britain is winning these battles. Cornwallis has come. Clinton has come. Uh, Henry Clinton, who's the leader in the north, he's the leader of all of the British troops. He comes down to, to South Carolina. You have the Battle of Charleston, the second siege of Charleston with Cornwallis. Charleston falls. The troops are running away. A group from Virginia had come down to help with the battle, to help the American cause in the battle. But they got there too late, so they turn around and they go back. Rutledge, the governor of South Carolina, escapes, and he's heading back north with... Abraham Buford, the head of this group. Well, Cornwallis hears about this, and so he sends one of his men, a man named Tarleton, Colonel Tarleton. Tarleton catches them. They weren't ready for the battle. Buford wasn't a good leader. And so here come Tarleton's troops. They get through the lines of Buford's troops, and so Buford's troops surrender. They get on hands and knees, they raise their hands, and they surrender. And Tarleton's troops cut them down, and massacred them with bayonets and swords. 
It's called Buford's Massacre or Tarleton's Massacre, the Waxhaw Massacre because of where it happened. And what happened was the word of that spread around. And, and, and the, what happened was you had a lot of the people in the South really didn't want to have anything to do with the war. They just wanted to live. And so what happened was they, that Cornwallis had sent Tarleton and then a man named Patrick Ferguson. Has anyone heard of the Ferguson rifle? Patrick Ferguson had invented the Ferguson rifle. And he was one of the greatest military leaders that Britain had. And he had raised up a militia. He had raised up his own army from the loyalists, those in the south who were on the side of England, to fight against these mountain men, these mountain militia that had been raised up on the patriot cause. And so they had gone into the wilderness to fight against these militia. But what had happened was most of these Baptists, they had just said, you know what, leave us alone. They went into the mountains, they went into Tennessee, they went into South Carolina, they went into Virginia, and just had their own communities, their own villages, and they said, leave us alone. Well, they heard about what had happened to Buford. They heard about that, and it made them mad. And so then here comes Patrick Ferguson. He's an arrogant man. And he sends a message over the mountains to to these villages, to these communities. And he says, if you raise arms against us, you will surrender to us or we will come and we will burn your houses. We will burn your farms and we will hang your men. That was the wrong thing to say. They took the messenger and his message and tarred and feathered him and sent him back to Ferguson and said, we're coming to see you. And so they started raising their militia. They started training their men. Who were these men? Has anyone heard of John Sevier, Sevierville, Tennessee? John Sevier was a deacon in a Baptist church. He, he gave the land to build the, the Baptist church on his community. He, he, was, he was a representative to the Baptist Association in Tennessee. You had... Another man named Isaac Shelby. Anyone heard of Shelby County, Ohio? Isaac Shelby was one of the commanders. Yet another man, his name was Abraham Campbell. And some of these others who were brought in, Titans Lane and these others who were brought in. Remember, Titans Lane is the pastor of the Buffalo Ridge Baptist Church. Titans Lane brought nine of his sons to this battle and the men from his church. Here's what happened. These Baptist preachers, when they heard this was happening, they said, come on, men. They gathered the churches together, and every man from the church got together and joined with Shelby, joined with Severe. But there was a problem. There was a problem. They had to tell their men because they needed to know when Ferguson was coming so they could come and meet Ferguson. So they set up this system where they put fires on on the highest peaks of the mountains. Well, the fire started burning. Ferguson's troops were moving. But somehow Campbell, who would become the leader of the mountain men, had to be told because the militias from Virginia had more than 350 soldiers. They needed to get them. So here's what happened. A man named Martin Gamble, a deacon in a Baptist church, said, I'll go. We've heard of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. Paul Revere rode eight or nine miles. Martin Gamble got on his horse. He started at Colonel Severe's house in North Carolina. And he rode 110 miles to Virginia in one day. He rode one horse to death. He was crossing a river and his horse died. He got up to the other side and there was a militia leader there plowing his field. 
And he said, Martin, go up to the house and get breakfast. And he took one of his plow horses and took the saddle off of Martin's horse and put it on his plow horse. He rode that horse to death. After he rode that horse to death, he got on another horse and got the word to Campbell. Campbell came and he brought his soldiers down and they went to a place. They gathered together with Severe, with Shelby, with the other soldiers. Now, it's October 7th, 1780. Patrick Ferguson decides he's going to go back and get reinforcements from Cornwallis. But before he does that, the troops catch up with him. And he decides to make his stand at a place called King's Mountain. He had 1,500 of his own troops, his own well-trained troops. Ferguson was the best shot probably in the world, one of the greatest commanders in the world. And he said, God Almighty couldn't take me off of this mountain. That might not be a good thing to say. Especially when you got a bunch of Baptist preachers coming after you. <laughs> they weren't all Baptists. Isaac Shelby was a Presbyterian. But these were men who loved freedom. They loved liberty. They wanted to be left alone. But when you tell some of those men that you're coming to kill their families, that's the wrong thing to say. These mountain men have been living in the mountains. Brilliant. And they had learned how to move and how to live in the mountains. And they were called the over-mountain men. That's how they're known to this day. Why? Because they had been chased over the mountain by Tryon. And they came back over the mountain to get Kennedy. Or to get Kennedy. <laughs> Not Patrick Kennedy. Patrick Ferguson. <laughs> and here's what they did. Ferguson has sentries out. But these men were so good, they also had about 1,100 troops. They took 900 troops into the woods, and they had the mountain surrounded and firing on Ferguson's position before Ferguson even knew they were there. So the battle starts. It lasts about an hour. Ferguson's men start coming down the mountain with their bayonets. But these mountain men, they just ran back down the mountain and hid until they retreated, and then they came back and started shooting. And they, they overtook them. They came up to the top. Ferguson decides he's going to flee the field of battle. Well, there was a boy there who was watching, and he got word back down that Ferguson had put a checkered shirt on to cover his uniform. And that's all those sharp-shooting Kentuckians need to, needed to hear. When they found him, his body had seven holes in it. They took him, and they threw him over the edge of the cliff, and threw rocks on them. And do you know what happened? As Ferguson's men wanted to surrender, do you know what the Americans said? Give them Tarleton's surrender. Give them Buford's play. And they tried to surrender again, and Isaac Shelby stepped in and stopped a massacre. Because here's what Americans believed. Leave us alone. But if you mess with us, we'll give you greater than you ever imagined. You understand that's been the American ethic all the way along? Remember what the Marine Corps motto was? We'll be your best friend or your worst enemy. Amen? And these men at King's Mountain, they fought a battle that has been called the turning point in the Revolutionary War. Cornwallis at that point, because he understood that the that the militias in the mountains could not be defeated, he took his troops and went north. 
Do you know what happened? That was 1780. When did the war end? 1781. There were still battles for another two years, but Cornwallis surrendered in 1781. Why? Because they understood that there were some people that were going to stand for the truth and fight for the truth. And at the core of it were Baptist people. Why is the, and you might be a guest today. You might be saying, Pastor, why are you bringing the Baptist thing into it? Because even in the other churches, if you go to a Methodist church or a Presbyterian church or, or really any kind of a church now, there is a Baptist doctrine that has come into your church that you wouldn't have known about if these men hadn't fought. It's called individual soul liberty. That was rejected by the Calvinists who had established their kingdoms, whether it was Zwingli in Switzerland, Zwingli in uh, um, his city in Switzerland, or Calvin in Geneva, in Zurich, you had, you had Zwingli. They would establish these theocracies and they'd kill people who didn't believe the way that they believed. That, that's what John Cotton wanted to do here in America, to kill them. Do you know who defended Obadiah Holmes in his trial? John Cotton. John Cotton called for his execution as a defense with friends like that. See, here's what we have to understand. Because of verses like Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1, we believe that liberty comes from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? What does the Constitution say? that we are endowed by our Creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You see, do I have it confused? Was that the Constitution Declaration of Independence? That is what our founders believed in. That is a Baptist doctrine. Pastor, why are you being so schismatic? Because differences make a difference. Things that are different are not the same. Everyone, except for Muslims, and non-religious people believe in soul liberty now. Right? Why? Because there were men like Martin Gamble who were willing to almost kill themselves writing. Let me read you a poem. We heard about Paul Revere's poem. One of Martin Gamble's descendants wrote this. The lesser known ride of Captain Martin Gamble. The captain saw the fire burn near while in a meeting at the home of Severe. Ferguson now a westward tide, 1100 at his side. Severe and Shelby set the date and seven days lay their fate. To To Sycamore Shoals they would meet. The stage was set for possible defeat. The militia leaders must be told to rally forces young and old, how to tell them to prepare and contact them with time to spare. Martin Gamble volunteered his steed. Sure, his mount could do the deed. Martin rode north to Osborne and Campbell, knowing his route was quite a gamble. As Martin crossed the New River wide, the New River, on the Baptist history trip this year, we got out of the bus and got in canoes and went down the New River to a wide spot, went up and we saw Martin Campbell's, Martin Gamble's grave there. It's an amazing thing. He says this, As Martin crossed the New River wide, his horse grew weary, fell and died. Captain Osborne dropped his plow, said Brother Gamble, go eat now. From the dead mount, Enoch took his tack and placed it on the plow horse's back. 
Martin left and followed the new to the mouth of the fox, then followed it too. To Comer's Gap and Hurricane Road, down the Holston his plow horse rode. Red Bridge his mount at Red Bridge his mount finally died. All looked grim, but a fresh mount was supplied. On to Colonel Campbell at Seven Mile Ford, his urgent message struck a deep chord. Campbell assembled his militia that day, on to meet others at a place far away. At Sycamore Shoals the militias all met, determined as ever a victory to get. Cleveland and Winston joined their groups. Southward they rode, proud mountain troops. Ferguson stopped and turned back to home, not wanting to face these troops all alone. On King's Mountain he turned to fight, easier to defend with his red-coated might. In only two hours the battle had begun. Ferguson's troops had nowhere to run. Five hundred redcoats lay dead in the sun, Ferguson making it five hundred and one. His elbow was shot with a stray rifle ball, but brave Martin Gamble steadfastly stood tall. Cornwallis's plans were changed that day, but a brand new nation was well underway. We've heard of Paul Revere. We need to know about Martin Gamble. Amen? You know, these people believed in liberty. I hope that you have experienced the liberty that comes in Jesus Christ. Becoming a Baptist doesn't give you that liberty. Uh, someone said there'll be more Baptists in Texas than there are in heaven. Being a Baptist doesn't take you to heaven. The liberty that comes from Christ only comes when you accept the free gift of eternal life that Jesus Christ has offered. You know what he did? He came and he died on the cross to pay for our sins so that we don't have to pay for it. If you'll receive that free gift of eternal life that he's offering you, then you can have the liberty that that verse is talking about. Some of you are under the bondage of the law. Galatians 5.1 talks about that. And that's you're thinking that you have to be good enough to be able to go to heaven. That's bondage. Christ wants you to have the liberty that comes from salvation in Christ. I hope that you'll I hope that you have experienced that liberty. I hope that you've experienced that freedom. And do we have any Americans here today? I hope that you understand the sacrifice that was made so that we can meet here today and talk about these things. You need to get this information and talk with somebody about it. You need to tell somebody about it. The midnight ride of Martin Gamble. The battle of King's Mountain. I love those over-the-mountain men. You know what I kept thinking about? I wanted to have the music from The Last of the Mohicans. You know, that guy running through the mountains, you know, looking for somebody to kill. That is exactly what those men were doing, man. It was awesome. I get tired just thinking about it. But I'm so thankful that we had real men who understood what it was to fight. At each of those battles, there was a Baptist preacher at the bottom of the mountain praying for the victory. There were wives and children at home taking care of the farm, taking care of the animals, praying for their men while they were gone. You know what? We need to raise up some of those hardy people again. Amen? Because things are coming down the road that are going to bring bondage. The longer people know the truth and talk about the truth, the harder it is for evil to win. Amen? Amen. Thank you, Lord, so much for freedom. Thank you for liberty.